Bonne dégion et bonne de Gessai. Mein blesser maur i mi kvach eleni vel in odrigolion newid sir gar. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a particular pleasure for me to be able to record this message for the Ammonford Talking Newspaper, especially at this time of the year. Uh, this is indeed a, a wonderful way to bring the community together, and I must acknowledge the hard work and commitment of Ina Harding and John Barker, together with the dedicated volunteers who have done so much to keep this service going. During my last visit to Carmarthenshire earlier this year, I was uh, enormously touched by the kind and friendly nature of those whom I met and the warm welcome I received in your community, even on a rather chilly spring day. And I, I seem to remember that there was a wonderful spread of tea and Welsh cakes in Mothvai Village Hall, and uh, I greatly enjoyed the chance to see the charming St. Michael's Church across the road before taking a tour of the Duchy of Cornwall's newly acquired house and farm at Schlinner Wormwood. Now, I have to say how delighted I am, finally, to have an excuse to visit this beautiful part of Wales more frequently. The coming year will, I hope, bring some exciting opportunities to explore the area and get to know our kind neighbours. I do believe passionately in the importance of preserving the best traditions of rural life and sustaining small communities which are under such threat. So I will be looking forward particularly to learning more about the various challenges that people face in this part of the world. I can only say that uh, both my wife and I look forward very much to our first stay at Schlinner-Wormwood next summer, and uh, this brings you all our warmest good wishes for a happy and prosperous new year. Igloi hofun the mino nadoli klawen yawn, ikigid abluwithin noid tha drost ben. Everybody. Welcome to our Christmas 2007 magazine. We thank His Royal Highness for recording this exclusive message for the Ammonford Talking newspaper. Peter Jackson has provided the introductory music and we thank him for this and his support throughout the year. Our contributors this year are Elizabeth and Colin, the Reverend Alan Maunder and Tony who will be providing the English section. For the Welsh section we have the Reverend Deborah Rees, Ray, Mary and Dewey. Throughout the programme you'll hear little bits and pieces from the school concert at Ascolabethel. It was absolutely beautiful and the children did absolutely wonderfully. If you can imagine little three-year-olds singing their hearts out and you'll be able to hear the tumultuous applause from their parents and their friends. It was well worth doing it. By the way, this is John here, just in case you think I don't exist. Bye. So, we continue with Tony, who is reading an amusing account of the trials and tribulations of a Welsh sheep farmer, who happens to be a future neighbour of Prince Charles. 
On you go, Tony. Having left the army after a very happy 28 years, the world was my oyster. I could have lazed on a beach in the West Indies, sailed a yacht around the Med, or even safaried from Cape Down to Cairo. What did I take up? Sheep farming on the Black Mountains in the Brecon Beacons National Park. My children thought it was an onset of senile dementia. My wife thought it was withdrawal symptoms from not being able to play soldiers at Sennybridge, and my friends just thought I was mad. We bought a farm and its house in 2000. The house is a thousand feet and has not been lived in since 1930. So it had some minor problems, no water or electricity, and a notice on the door saying it was too dangerous to enter. The barns were a do-it-yourself kit, piles of stones lying around roughly where they had fallen over the past 70 years. To get to this desirable residence, as the estate agent called it, you drove until the tarmac ran out, crossed a ford-stroke raging torrent, went up a track laid down by Adam's cousin, and then hacked your way through an offshoot from the jungles of Borneo. I thought it was fantastic. We started to restore the house and land at the same time as we met up with the sheep. We started with pretty standard white Welsh mountain sheep, but soon decided we wanted something else. The else became black Welsh mountain sheep. If you haven't come across these creatures before, they are easily described as sheeps with attitude. The white sheep would do more or less what you wanted. The black sheep would do as they wished. Trees can be climbed, gates can be charged through, and day trips organised to the most of the neighbouring farms. Sheepdogs hold no fear for them, and, if there is the slightest chance of getting through a fence, the Flock Escape Committee has already seen it. They have all watched the film, The Great Escape, and if they had access to a motorcycle, they would have done better than Steve McQueen. My learning curve came as a farmer was almost vertical and the animals knew it. It was at this stage that we decided to become a fully-fledged organic farm and join all the environmental schemes going. Now, you're really asking yourselves why. I thought that being organic would be a simpler form of farming. It isn't. I thought that being environmentally friendly was not going to be a problem. It is. So perseverance was required. A large portion of the Brazilian rainforest was demolished so that I could have in enough paper to keep all my required records. 68 separate files for organic and filing cabinets were purchased to contain the documents detailing what would happen to me if I defaulted on any obscure item. The regime of inspection started. Much like any military inspection, the key was to know the inspector. Was he a chocolate biscuit person or was he into shortbread? During most of these inspections, the black sheep managed to cover me in their truly organic credentials, which added a certain charm to the proceedings. It was at this stage that I realised what farming was about. It isn't really about land animals and crops. It's about forms and abbreviations. I thought I was well versed in the latter. I could explain what a LT, curl, was to a private, PTE, and why he was an MA to the PM or was responsible for the MPSC. Simple. 
I had now entered a world of IAACS, SWP, and OF and G, and supplied details to NAW and CCW. So what I become FAWL? <laughs> Difficult. As my company sergeant major told me many times, shut up and soldier on. Electricity arrived, courtesy of a mile-long trench. No overhead wires in this portion of the National Park. The telephone arrived in the same trench. Military planning, you might think. In fact, sheer luck. Uh, much like military planning, come to think of it. The water arrived. The pipe water, that is. We have regular deliveries of torrential kind, by the way of a deep borehole. I have yet to understand why boreholes are sunk on high ground, rather than on low ground. The diviner did explain, but it's hard to take a person serious when he makes his living walking around a field with a wobbly stick. Where we live, finding water is easy. Finding dry ground is a difficult job. Our first agriculture year was an eye-opener. We harvested hay, tupped, possibly pornographic, and then lambed. The latter was a cross between Emmerdale Farm and Casualty. We only had two lambs killed out of 155, so we felt quite good about it. A new range of perfume, Eau de Mouton. We also began to recognise individual sheep. This last point I would advise any future sheep farmers to keep to themselves. We made the mistake of telling our children, all I said was, you 252 is looking a bit off colour when looking at the flock. My wife knew which you I was talking about and proceeded to agree with me. The children, aged between 28 and 35, looked at us in total disbelief to be followed by the comment, you're really going to have to get out more. For the true sheep geek, E252 was beginning to show signs of hypocalcemia. She recovered very well. So, how has this affected our social life? Well, we are now invited to supper parties. If somebody asks me about the sheep, I am instantly assailed by groans of please don't ask Chris about the sheep from all those who know me. It is difficult to talk about a flock's health and welfare in under 30 minutes, especially when you have to explain the smell of foot rot to somebody who is about to take a mouthful from his plate. Our friends have become far more squeamish since I took up farming. We have found that everybody wishes to visit us. I suppose much like visiting the sick in hospital. They come to see if we are going to recover and become normal again. This has led to some embarrassing moments. For example, during the lambing, it is essential to keep pregnant women away from the lambing sheds. They could catch a bug, which can cause all sorts of nasties. I can go into detail, but perhaps this would be too much information. So let me set the scene. Any lady of breeding age visiting the farm over the lambing should be asked before she arrives if she is pregnant, or if she intends to get pregnant. You can phrase this question in any way you wish, but it still comes out wrong. If she is a large lady anyway, she is insulted. If she has a prospective daughter-in-law, she thinks you're inquiring as to her breeding potential. My explanations don't seem to cut the mustard. 
Is the farm profitable? You will probably ask. Well, in some ways, yes. It supplies for free lots of healthy exercise in all weathers. We are too far away to pop out for anything to save our impulse buying. Smart clothing is not required as the sheep are not fashion conscious. If you like lamb and mutton, then meat is not a problem. Does it make a profit? Well, if my wife and I work 12 hours a day for free, then it does. But you would, in reality, earn more as a big issue salesman. Does it matter? I don't think it does. It is a way of life that cannot be bettered, and I feel on occasions that I should be paying to live it. We have also tried to diversify by turning lambs into sausage and various exotic types, persuading our friends to eat mutton, and have planted a reasonable sized orchard. This, I know, smacks of good life. I dare not talk about the vegetable patch, but we are really still normal. I know this because we haven't resorted to making our own gin, probably because we wouldn't be able to produce the quinine for tonic at this altitude. Mind you, I wonder if anybody's tried. We are trying to diversify. The new projects are cattle and bees. Why? Do I hear you ask? Because with cattle, I like the idea and get on well with them. And bees, because uh, the thought of honey from our own patch seems too good to be true. We had thought about chickens and pigs, but we were on a Fox motorway and chickens would just act as a service station for them. As for pigs... Well, I like the idea, but my wife says they are too intelligent. I've yet to work out what this statement means, other than the obvious and why it matters. But, as all males know, when something is said in a particular way by your other half, then you ignore it at your own peril. So we've now come to the end of our fifth lambing, and farm is covered in little black ankle snappers and exhausted ewes. The trees are just beginning to bud. We're about three weeks behind the rest of the country. The sun is beginning to shine and we may just be able to cut the lawn for the first time. The cattle are due to arrive in the near future and I was called this morning about some bee colonies for sale, so things move on. Where are we now? After five years, we've almost finished with the builders on the, pro on the current projects. We had the largest flock of organic black Welsh mountain sheep in the world. I have mussels in areas I didn't even know I had mussels, and we live in the most beautiful part of the most wonderful country in the world. I think I'm going to stay mad, but a satisfied farmer forever.
Hello, I'm Alan Maunder, vicar of the Kumaman Group of Churches. Christmas is once more upon us. It is, of course, one of the two great Christian festivals. All too often, though, we have a romanticised and rather sentimental view of the events of that first Christmas. After all, the story of a baby born into humble surroundings in a stable has a certain charm about it, and it fires our imagination. We tend to think of a well-swept stable, good clean straw, a comfortable manger, the animals in quiet adoration gathered around the infant Jesus with Mary and Joseph. The reality was no doubt rather different. The place where Jesus was born was in all probability noisy, dirty and smelly, and in many ways this is wholly appropriate. In the birth of Jesus we believe that something wonderful happened, that God came to this world to be with his people for a while. How this can be we cannot possibly know. We simply remember with thankful and joyful hearts at Christmas time that this was so. God came down at Christmas to take on a human nature and to share our human life, to share the good things and the bad, its joy, its sadness, its pleasures, and its pain and suffering. In short, he came to take responsibility for the world that he had made, and to do something about human sin and suffering. So he came to this world, not to great fanfares and the honour and glory due to him, but in the indignity of being born as a human infant, in humble and probably squalid conditions and to live a short life that ended in the pain and suffering of the cross. The wonderful truth of Christmas is that our God came to get his hands dirty, as it were, to bring light to the darkness of this world, and to do something about the human condition, to bring about forgiveness of our sins, and to bring us hope. There are, of course, many, many things that distract us at Christmas time. It is a very busy time. But let us not forget that the truth of Christmas is this, that once upon a time our God came to be one of us and to live with us for a while and to die for us. I wish you all a peaceful and joyful Christmas. Nadole Klawen. Here's a piece by H. H. Munro, better known as Saki. Reginald on Christmas presents. 
I wish it to be distinctly understood, said Reginald, that I don't want a George Prince of Wales prayer book as a Christmas present. The fact cannot be too widely known. There ought, he continued, to be technical education classes on the science of present giving. No one seems to have the faintest notion of what anybody else wants, and the prevalent ideas on the subject are not quite creditable to a civilised community. There is, for instance, the female relative in the country who knows a tie is always useful and sends you some spotted horror that you could only wear in secret or in the Tottenham Court Road. It might have been useful had she kept it to tie up currant bushes with, when it would have served the double purpose of supporting the branches and frightening away the birds. For it's an admitted fact that the ordinary tomtit of commerce has a sounder aesthetic taste than the average female relative in the country. Then there are aunts. They are always a difficult class to deal with in the matter of presence. The trouble is that one never catches them really young enough. By the time one has educated them to an appreciation of the fact that one does not wear red woollen mittens in the West End, they die or quarrel with the family or do something equally inconsiderate. That is why the supply of trained aunts is always so precarious. There's my Aunt Agatha, for example, who sent me a pair of gloves last Christmas and even got so far as to choose a kind that was being worn and had the correct number of buttons. But they were nines. I sent them to a boy whom I hated intimately. He didn't wear them, of course, but he could have. That was where the bitterness of death came in. It was nearly as consoling as sending white flowers to his funeral. Of course, I wrote and told my aunt they were the one thing I'd always been wanting, and to make the existence blossom like a rose. I'm afraid she thought me frivolous. She comes from the north, where they live in the fear of heaven and the Earl of Durham. Even friends of one's own set, who might be expected to know better, have curious delusions on the subject. I am not collecting copies of the cheaper editions of Omar Khayyam. I gave the last four I received to the lift boy, and I like to think of him reading them with Fitzgerald's notes to his aged mother. Lift boys always have aged mothers. Show such nice feeling on their part, I think. Personally, I can't see where the difficulty in choosing suitable presents lies. No boy who has brought himself up properly could fail to appreciate one of those decorative bottles of liqueurs that are so reverently staged in Morrill's window. And it wouldn't be the least matter if you did get duplicates. And there would always be the supreme moment of dreadful uncertainty whether it was creme de menthe or chartreuse like the expectant thrill of seeing your partner's hand turned up at bridge. People may say what they like about the decay of Christianity. The religious system that produced green chartreuse can never really die. And then, of course, there are liqueur glasses, and crystallised fruits, and tapestry curtains, and heaps of other necessaries of life that make things really sensible presents. Not to speak of luxuries, such as having one's bills paid, or getting something quite sweet in the way of jewellery. Unlike the alleged good woman of the Bible, I am not above rubies when found, by the way. She may have been rather a problem at Christmas time. Nothing short of a blank check would have fitted the situation. Perhaps it's as well that she's died out. 
but I draw the line at the Prince of Wales prayer book. The great charm about me, concluded Reginald, is that I am so easily pleased. to believe that another 12 months have gone by and that again it's Christmas. Colin and I, and I'm Elizabeth, we're going to read to you all sorts of things. Please forgive if you've heard some of them before, but I think that some really do bear repetition. Sometimes I may remark to a friend that we are preparing the Christmas tape and very often I receive the suggestion that we should read Dickens's A Christmas Carol. It's a wonderful idea, but of course we can't read all of it. Here is Dickens's preface to the first edition. It was published in December 1843, by the way. And uh, in his preface to the first edition of his A Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens wrote, I have endeavoured in this ghostly little book to raise the ghost of an idea which shall not put my readers out of humour with themselves, with each other, with the season, or with me. May it haunt their houses pleasantly, and no one wish to lay it. And towards the end of that delightful book, he puts these words into the mouth of his main protagonist, Ebenezer Scrooge, after he has been made to suffer torment at the hands of the ghosts of Christmas past, present and future. At last he has learnt the error of his ways, and he says, I will honour Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. I will live in the past, the present, and the future. The spirits of all the three shall strive within me. I will not shut out the lessons that they teach. And now two readings about the Magi, those three mysterious beings who journeyed to that stable in Bethlehem. The first one is by T. 
T.S. Eliot. And strangely enough, it's called The Journey of the Magi. A cold coming we had of it. Just the worst time of the year for a journey. And such a long journey. The ways deep and the weather sharp. The very dead of winter. And the camels galled, sore-footed, refractory, lying down in the melting snow. There were times we regretted the summer palaces on slopes, the terraces, and the silken girls bringing sherbet. Then the camel men, cursing and grumbling, and running away, and wanting their liquor and women, and the night fires going out, and the lack of shelters, and the cities hostile, and the towns unfriendly, and the villages dirty, and charging high prices. A hard time we had of it. At the end we preferred to travel all night, sleeping in snatches, the voices singing in our ears, saying that this was all folly. Then at dawn we came down to a temperate valley, wet below the snow line, smelling of vegetation, with a running stream and a water mill beating the darkness, and three trees on the low sky, and an old white horse galloped away in the meadow. Then we came to a tavern with vine leaves over the lintel, six hands at an open door dicing for pieces of silver, and feet kicking the empty wineskins. But there was no information, and so we continued, and arrived at evening, not a moment too soon, finding the place. It was, you may say, satisfactory. All this was a long time ago, I remember, and I would do it again. But set down this, set down this. Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here, in the old dispensation, with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. And now another one called The Wicked Singers. And have you been out carol singing, collecting for the old folks' dinner? And did you sing all the Christmas numbers, every one a winner? Good King Wenceslas, and hark the herald angels sing... And did you sing them loud and clear, and make the night sky ring? And did you count up all the money? Was it quite a lot? Oh, yes, indeed. Oh, yes, indeed. And did you give it all to the vicar, every single dot? Oh, dear, we forgot.